Thank you. Thanks, Tom, and thank you, education. That was good fun. Um, I'm going to read the Bible for us, and it should be on your screens as well, um, but it should also be in your handouts. We're not doing the whole of chapter 5, um, so maybe just follow the screen if you're confused, but we're starting from sort of halfway through verse 5. All right. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. Does anyone happen to recognize these words by any chance? Anyone? No? No one? Cool. Um, these are the words of William Ernest Henley, um, the author of the 19th century poem Invictus, which is a Latin word for unconquerable or undefeated. You can't exactly tell from the title or from the words, but Henley actually wrote this poem while he was in hospital, being treated for tuberculosis of the bone. He had this disease from a young age, and in fact, he had to get his leg amputated at the age of 17. Now, it's a poem that was actually written in the face of tremendous suffering, but it speaks of courage in the face of suffering as well. Now, the rest of the poem goes like this. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged the punishments with punishments scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Some of you might recognize the last two lines, perhaps, of this, of this poem. Honestly, honestly speaking, I only knew the last two lines of this poem until I looked it up, and then I found this whole poem. But I think it's, it's quite an interesting poem, isn't it? It's quite inspiring. And I think the spirit of this 19th century poem quite accurately portrays our current Australian values. The power, of, uh, the power and the unconquerability of humanity, and the ability to take your own destiny into your own hands. This is what we're told everywhere we go. I went to a school called Fort Street High School and the school motto in Latin was everyone is the maker of, your own, of their own destiny. And it, and it sounds pretty attractive, doesn't it? The power to take your, your own life in your own hands and do whatever you want with it, no matter what comes, no matter the circumstances, even if you're in the depths of suffering, you are the master of your fate. You're the captain of your soul. And I think, I think I can get where he's coming from. 
having come face to face with the chaos of life and the weakness and the suffering of his own body, he doesn't want to just cave in and let this suffering beat him to the ground. It's this never say die, I'm, I'm never going to give up kind of attitude. But I have to say, as much as I feel for him, and as, in, as inspiring as his words are, I have to respectfully disagree. Are we really the masters of our fate? Are we really the captains of our souls? Can we really have control over what happens to us in this life or what happens afterwards? Our culture today prides itself in the freedom to take control of our lives and the freedom of choice because the idea is that the more freedom you have, the happier you will be. The less constraints you have, the more you will be able to choose what you really want in life. But is our freedom of choice really going to make us happier? In some ways, I feel that having so much choice actually sometimes makes us more anxious, especially if we have no guidance as to how to make those choices. Psychologist um, Barry Schwartz, who is not religious, um, calls it the paradox of choice, explaining that the official dogma of Western society goes like this. If we are interested in maximizing the welfare of our citizens, the way to do that is to maximize individual freedom. But he argues that, ironically, choice has made us not freer but more paralyzed, not happier but more dissatisfied. Or perhaps another way to put it is this. Perhaps much of the suffering that we face here in Australia is the result of having too much choice. Perhaps much of our suffering actually stems from us believing that we are the masters of our fate and the captains of our souls. So what I'm about to say is probably going to sound rather counterintuitive, but I'm hoping that it will help to challenge our thinking just a little bit. So today we'll speak about the importance of relinquishing control, the difficulty of rel relinquishing control, that's a hard word, the glory of relinquishing control. Again, I'm going to introduce uh, a quote uh, from our friend Barry Schwartz, because even though he's not a Christian, um, I think that what he has to say on this topic accords really well, actually, with some Christian ideas. Um, in his TED talk on the paradox of choice, he gives this example. In the States, you go to the doctors and they, t they no longer can tell you what to do. Instead, they give you options. Do you want option A or option B? Option A will give you these benefits, but also these side effects. Option B, these benefits and these side effects. So what do you want to do? And then you might say, well, doctor, if you were me, what would you choose? Because you're the professional. But because patients should have autonomy, doctors are no longer meant to tell you what to do. So they can only say, do you want option A or do you want option B? Option A has these benefits and these risks. Option B has these benefits and these risks. What do you want to do? And so Schwartz tells us that what has happened is the burden of responsibility has shifted from the person who knows something, the professional, that is the doctor, to the person who doesn't know something, and that's the patient. And if you think about it, that's in a sense what we have done with our own lives, when we think we are the ones who are, are in control. When society decided to abandon God, we also shifted away from trusting God 
That is, we shift away from trusting the professional on life. Trusting ourselves instead in our own choices. And are we really in the state to be able to do that? Do we really know how to make the best decisions for our lives? But contrary to this idea of being masters of our own fate, there is an alternative way to look at life that is counterintuitive. In a society where people are encouraged to take their life by the reins, we are told today in this passage that we just read, these words that seem to have the opposite effect. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. In other words, instead of seeking to take control of our own lives, we are told here to relinquish control and humble ourselves under God. And that means that we are to trust him to take control. And it's not as if he's some tyrannical leader who uses and abuses us. No, we are told here that he cares for us. And that's why we can put our trust in him. Sounds a little bit crazy though, doesn't it? That the God of the universe, who is more powerful than anything else, actually cares for us. We need to remember that this is written in the context of great suffering and great persecution. So what Peter is saying here is something a little bit like this. Instead of proudly asserting your control over your own life and rising up to fight those who hurt you, take a step into the background and let God be the one who lifts you up. I think one of the reasons why why suffering is so scary is because not only does it hurt, but it actually exposes our weaknesses. It exposes our lack of control. It makes us feel as if we are losing in life and that others around us have it better. It brings about feelings of shame and worthlessness and may even make us question why we are are alive at all. But according to Peter, this state of humility is exactly what we need. Suffering hammers into us the fact that we are actually not the ones in control. It helps us to realise that we really don't have much power at all. It helps us to realise that we are not the captains of our souls. And it's in that very state when we finally admit our weaknesses and our need. It's in that state that God shows us grace. So these words are very significant. God opposes the proud, but gives grace or shows favour to the humble. In other words, we can only experience the grace of God when we recognise, finally, that in fact, we need his help. The proud person will not want to let go of that control. The proud person, in the midst of suffering and weakness, will want to cover up that weakness and continue to uh, to seek to forge their own path on their own for the rest of their lives. And in seeking to forge their own path, they actually miss out on these sure promises that God gives us in these verses. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. 
Now, to put it another way, if we seek to take control of our own lives, God will oppose us. But if we cast all our cares onto Him, stepping into the background and letting Him be the master of our fate, then He will lift us up. Now, of course, that is a lot easier said than done. It's not exactly easy to let go of control, is it? It would mean admitting that we are too weak to do things on our own, and I think we hate that, especially in our culture. But there's another reason why letting go of control is so hard, and that's because the enemy that is mentioned here makes us believe that we are the ones who are in control of our fate. So verse 8 tells us, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the whole world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. The devil, for those of you who don't know, is the master of telling lies. And the lie that I think he's built up in this society is that autonomy leads to happiness. And the lie that I think he built up back then in Peter's day was actually similar. The lie was that rising up to fight their own persecutors was going to win them happiness. They were starting to think, be free from this bondage to your rulers. Rise up. You deserve much better than this. Fight for freedom and win your own happiness. All the people, I think, that are idolized in our culture have that same mantra. You deserve better, so fight for freedom and win your happiness. Now, I wonder if, in part, the obsession with superhero movies these days is partially to do with this idea, too. Because superheroes fight to throw off their chains and win freedom for the masses. But this is exactly the idea that Peter fights here in this letter. Like I spoke about last week, the example and attitude that Christians are meant to follow is that of Jesus Christ. The attitude that says, God, I am suffering now, but I refuse to rise up and retaliate. And I give this situation into your hands because you are the faithful judge. It's difficult to relinquish control simply because we believe the lie that taking control of our lives is the way to find true happiness. It runs very deep in our culture. It's like the water that we drink. We believe the lie that individual freedom is what matters most and that God actually hasn't got our interests at heart. And so we are skeptical about God's words. We don't trust his words because we believe that they'll actually restrict us and that that would kill our happiness. Isn't that why teens also have rebellious phases often? They want to be free from their parents' control because they believe that going their own way will make them happier. And ironically, they only realize later on the wisdom of their parents' control when they're miserable about their current state of life. But think about these words that were mentioned earlier. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And I know that casting your anxiety on him and relinquishing control is not an easy thing to do. But you may actually find that even though it is difficult, it's precisely that relinquishing of control and trusting him that provides the antidote to your anxiety.
Now I'm going to get a little bit personal here. Um, some of you might already know part of this story, but please bear with me. In 2013, I was finishing up my apprenticeship here with Credo. Um, and it was around that same time that I had to decide what to do next. So uh, my then fiance, Shirley, and I were thinking that we wanted to do mission work in Japan. And pretty much for the next four years of our lives after we got married, the big decisions we made were to pave the way for that mission work in Japan. It was a big dream of my own, um, and that the cause also seemed pretty noble. Um, and for Shirley as well, she was, she was on board for it, thankfully. Everything seemed to fit so well. I had learned Japanese for six years, including one year of exchange in Japan. Both of us understood the culture pretty well, um, and we were both very keen to see more Japanese people come to know Jesus. And so, after a few years of preparation um, in training at Bible College, last year we decided to finally take the plunge and apply to head overseas with a mission organization. Now, we, we had already had pretty good ties with this organization, and, and they and most people actually already knew us as the Japan guys. Everyone was so certain that we were heading there. And then after several months of preparation at, and at the end of this application process, it hit us like a ton of bricks. We think you're not quite ready to go yet. Now, following this, we had months of processing these words, and we had to reevaluate everything in our lives. We were constantly questioning, what was all of that for? Why did we work so hard to get to where we are if this is not what God wants us to do? What does he actually want us to do with our lives? And at that point, we had a choice. To fight hard against the grain, to keep going for what we had planned in life, or to sit still and listen to what God was telling us to do. And after months of tough consideration and prayer, we recognized against our own will that God was telling us to stay put here in Sydney. And although initially that was very hard for us to swallow, and initially it was very, very humbling, it was only when I decided to relinquish that control that I began to see the wisdom in God's guidance. Very soon after that, God picked us up again. And again, that, uh, he reminded us that we are not defined by the things that we do but by the simple fact that we are his children and he cares for us. He knows far better than us about what we should be doing with our lives. And I find these final words in our passage today tremendously comforting. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. The glory that God calls us to is an eternal glory. And the suffering that we face is only a little, a little while in comparison to that. For those who relinquish control and, and say to God, I'm not the master of my fate, you are. These people will be able to see that even though the night is dark and the pit is black, and all of life just seems to be out of control. We actually don't need to be in control because God is the one who's in control. And he is able to lift us up 
restore us and make us strong and firm and lead the way to true glory, to everlasting happiness in a place free from suffering. Nothing in this world will ever be able to compare to the great things that are to come because when that day comes and he brings us into glory, all that suffering that we are currently going through in our present condition will only be a dim memory. I know this might seem rather disrespectful, but I'd like to go back um, to actually change some of the lyrics of the poem I first mentioned to suit what we've spoken about today. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank the God of the universe for conquering my soul. If only Henley, the author of this poem, knew the God he was trying to thank. And if only he knew that he didn't have to be the one with the unconquerable soul. Because it it is only in the fact that we have a powerful God who cares for us, that we are in in our weaknesses and suffering able to say with confidence that my fate is in good hands. How good it is to have him as the master of our fate and the captain of our souls. I'm going to invite Hannah up and she's going to pray for us. Anna, Hannah, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and what you study? Yeah. Uh, hi everyone, my name is Hannah. I'm a second year private education student. Um, uh, cool, that's it. That's, yeah, that's, that's it. it. I was like, what else? <laughs> <laughs> 